Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies and TV series with history. Today, we're going to be looking at AMC's TV series, Hell on Wheels. Now, that's some five seasons worth of content. So instead of covering everything about the entire show, what we're going to do today is focus on one of the main characters, Thomas Doc Durant. He was played by Colm Meany in the series. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with author Sheila Myers, who has written an excellent trilogy of historical fiction books that are incredibly well-researched called The Durant Family Saga. And if you're listening to this on the day it's released, Sheila has a brand new novel telling a story during the Great Depression called The Truth of Who You Are. That's released today. Oh, and speaking of listening, if you're catching the audio version of the show, I want to let you know now you can watch the episodes on YouTube. Subscribe to the show over at youtube.com slash based on a true story podcast. Before we chat with Sheila, it's time to set up our game now. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true. That means one of them is an all out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Durant's son did not die of cholera, like the series suggests. Number two, Durant never murdered a federal marshal like we see in the series. Number three, even though he had the nickname Doc, Durant was not a real doctor. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. Maybe it's going to be obvious, maybe not. Can you find out which one is a lie? (laughs) We'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Sheila Myers about the character of Dr. Durant in Hell on Wheels. one thing I like to do before diving into some of the details is to take a step back and look at things overall. So if you were to give Hell on Wheels a letter grade for how well it did portraying the character of Dr. Durant, what would it get? So out of a scale of one to 10, I would give it probably a seven. Great job with his personality. Uh, and the actor, you know, Colmini did a great job. Uh, and then I just think exaggerated things and made up things about that about historical facts you know that weren't facts and they bent the truth a lot so that would be the only reason i'd say seven out of ten but in terms of the character it would probably be more of a nine because i think calm did a great job on meaning i mean that's pretty good it is entertainment so i mean that's, that's yeah. pretty pretty good considering yeah yeah oh yeah Well, in the first episode of the first season, we're given the year 1865, and Durant's already in charge of building the Union Pacific Railroad. So can you give us a little historical context or overview of Durant's life up until the timeline of the series? Sure. He had, uh, he and his two brothers, Charles and William, started a uh, shipping business, shipping grain, and then they eventually started shipping parts and materials for the expansion out west into the territories. And they and that's how he got involved in railroads because he realized that the future was in railroads. And so he began in um, investing in railroads. And at the same time, he also learned a lot about the stock market because he and his brothers started playing around in the stock market. 
And I think that's really what drew him to the transcontinental is the idea that he knew the government was investing a lot of money in infrastructure, especially um, out West because the civil war was ending and they felt the need to send troops and have access to Western territories. And so I think he, he was just an opportunist that realized the financial gains that were available if he um, pursued the trans, you know, the transcontinental. Okay. So he was already a businessman beforehand. This wasn't like his, his first time <laughs> doing that. Yes, he was. Yes. Kind of aside from the business, I know, I know, Throughout the series, we do get a few different peeks into his family life. Uh, there's an example I can give in season one. He mentions his wife back in New York. Uh, in season two, we actually meet his wife as she comes to Hell on Wheels. We also find out that his son died of cholera. Uh, I got the sense from watching the show that their marriage just wasn't the same after their son died, which, of course, makes sense. Uh, but then later on in the series, we do find out that they get divorced. Did the show do a good job? explaining what Durant's family life was like? No, not at all, actually. Um, <laughs> and as a, uh, uh, also later on, don't forget to ask me about his being a doctor. Um, yeah, he, so what happened is when the Civil War broke out, his wife, Hannah, was actually, she's English or she was English. She's dead now, of course. And she didn't want to be around during the Civil War. <clears throat> so she took off to England with her two children. She had, um, Durant had two children, William and Ella. And so they went to Europe and they stayed in Europe during the whole entire time that he was building the transcontinental. Now they might've come back. I, there were, there was pictures of William coming back to the event when they, um, you know, when the two lines met the central Pacific and the union Pacific, but, uh, he, they really were not a part of his life. So, and, you know, I found letters that, um, the Durant family actually has cataloged a lot of letters not just Doc Durant, but the other, the rest of the expanded family, and they're at the New York Public Library. And I went through them, and I found letters between Doc Durant and his wife Hannah during this time period while he was building the Transcontinental. And you know, she was a very typical woman of her time. I mean, I give her a lot of credit because it must have taken a lot of courage to live alone with your two children, but they were completely dependent on him. And there was letters where she, you know, she called him pet, and she said, "I'm so sorry, I spent that money." You know, she was really beholden to him. He was holding all the purse strings and they lived a pretty good lifestyle. I mean, they traveled. I, I, I tracked all the places um, they lived and they lived in Paris and they lived in and, you know, William went to Norway. They went to um, Dorf Gestine and took in the spa. And, you know, they really did a lot of travel. William, his oh, um, oldest son, his only son went and big game hunting in Egypt twice. So, I mean, he uh, really lavished them and, and, brought them up the best possible lifestyle that he could. They, uh, Hannah did not have anything to do though with the transcontinental and those episodes you're talking about where she's really involved and she's also American. It, they're not very, they're not authentic in that sense. Okay. Was she there at all? Cause we do, we do see her there, but of course the show doesn't really leave hell on wheels that much. Did not get that impression from reading through letters that she ever visited him out West. Uh, and his son never did die. As a matter of fact, the um, behind me is his son. And the books that I wrote follow the Durant family post-transcontinental. And his son lives to a ripe old age of 84. <laughs> so, yeah, he doesn't die of cholera. But, you know, it's funny because I don't know who the researchers were. And, you know, they might not have had a lot of material to work with for the family. There's not much out there about Hannah unless she did a lot of digging. 
But there was biographies about his son because his son was famous in his own right for building great camps in the Adirondacks and a lot of lawsuits and scandals that followed and plagued the family. But there was an incident in one of the letters that I read where William had, it sounded like cholera. So I thought that was kind of interesting because they make it sound like he died of cholera. Well, cholera was really common back then. And especially if you were in London, you know, you were trying to escape the cities to get away from cholera. So it kind of makes sense that they use that. But no, he never died. Interesting. Yeah, that was that was 100% the impression that I got was he died and that just put strain on their marriage, which under, I mean, I can understand not only the, the death, but also it does sound like this, them being separate so much. That has to be tough on a marriage as well. I can't imagine that he was faithful to her the whole time. I really highly doubt that, given the time period, especially. And just to travel back and forth from England to the United States would take months at that time on ship. So, and communication would be slow. So I, you know, some of the letters I saw too from his daughter, Ella, she wrote to her father were, you know, just kind of heartbreaking. Like we kept a, we kept a flower on your seat where you would normally be sitting because today was your birthday, you know? They really, they went years without seeing him. Wow. Yeah, that, I couldn't imagine. That would just be so difficult to, to be able to do that and still maintain the marriage. Right, exactly. Yeah. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com/tos for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earnin. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, something that happens to Durant in the second season, there's some Confederate soldiers who rob the town and they take the railroad's payroll. And in the process, we see Doc Durant get shot and he's very badly wounded. He ends up having to actually go to Chicago to get treated and, and to heal. Was the show accurate to depict Durant getting shot and having to leave the railroad to recover? Yeah, so that I am not aware of that. Um, and that might, again, just been dramatic license that they were just using to show how dangerous it was, the situation out West and um, in the kind of people that he was interacting with. And given his own upbringing, where he came from, 
um, there, I think they were just really trying to show the dichotomy of uh, type of people, you know, with Hell on Wheels being this sort of traveling village and town and, and, you know, attracting all kinds of bandits and types of people. So that I never saw any evidence that he was mortally wounded or anything like that in any of the readings that I had of his, you know, in terms of biographies. Did he leave the railroad though? Because what kind of the, the impression I got from the series was that his wounding was a chance for him to leave essentially and then somebody else kind of take over. Yeah. So there was push and pull between him and his board and certain people on the board, but that really happened more later in um, towards the end when the transcontinental was almost complete. And that had to do with his scandal with the credit mobilier that he set up, the construction company that he set up and uh, Oak Ames, who uh, was at the time a congressperson who he was bribing and they got into a lot of uh, arguments and he got forced off the board. But that happened later. Um, it was almost, you know, towards the end of his tenure anyways, Transcontinental was going to get built. But I do imagine there were times where he did leave and had to go east because he was lobbying. I mean, he was a lobbyist. He would go east just like Carlos Huntington from the Central Pacific. They spent a lot of time on the East Coast. I mean, I found an article written in the Brooklyn Tribune. I think it was uh, it was like 1868, 69. And they talk about Durant being on his yacht. He had a yacht called Idler that he kept in the Brooklyn Yacht Club. And he would you know, entertain people on his yacht. Um, so he had business interests, too, out out on the East Coast. I mean, he amassed a half a million acres that he acquired in the Adirondack Mountains that he planned. That was his next venture, was another railroad into the interior there and exploiting the resources there. So there would be times he would have definitely left the railroad. But if it was because he got shot, that's a whole other story that I never saw evidence of. But who knows? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Well, you, you mentioned that scandal there, and I wanted to ask about uh, something that we do see. Uh, it, I think it starts in season one. We kind of see it. We, we find out that Durant has taken like $147,000 from the railroad for his own private use. Uh, that, that's what the, I think it's the Swede that tells uh, visiting Senator Jordan Crane in episode six. And then later on in season three, we see Durant in Hudson Prison on charges of embezzling those railroad funds. So was there truth to that allegation of, of $147,000 and him going to prison for it? So it was more like $40 million. $40 million then or $40 million today? And then. Wow. 800, yeah. So it was interesting, guys. I went back and watched a lot of the season two because it got me, because it had been so long for me. And Lily has this ledger. Remember the ledger? And she and she's like holding it and saying, I'm going to, you know, use this against you. And, and she wants uh, Bohannon to join her and they're going to, you know, crush Durant. Well, what's interesting about that was there was a ledger and when um, Durant set up this credit mobilier company that was basically he owned, he was on the board of this company and it was really um, a conflict of interest. And he was bribing congressmen by giving them stocks in credit mobilier. And what the credit mobilier was set up to do was be the construction arm of the transcontinental for the Union Pacific. So it was like the Union Pacific, who he was in charge of, was hiring Credit Mobilier, which he was in charge of, to um, do the construction. And so what it would do is, and I'm just going to throw this out as an example, say something costs, well, actually, I saw this in an actual letter. 
one of his engineers quit because he said, uh, when I did my estimate, it was going to cost $30,000 to run this line. And you told me to inflate it to $50,000. And so that's what it did. It inflated the actual costs of things either by doing unnecessary embankments or running a line in a longer route around just to add more track because they were paying paid per mile of track. And so he built the government out of a lot of money doing that. And that ledger that Lily has actually existed. And what happened is um, they couldn't find it. And somebody actually broke into his New York offices, one, a disgruntled stockbroker trying to find this ledger. And the government at this point, after the transcontinental was finished, was going after Durant and Huntington, investigating them. And the ledger was never found until, this is very interesting, like 1935 or 40, I found a letter Durant's daughter-in-law sent to a a historian, a, a railroad historian saying, hey, this uh, lawyer just contacted me and they have all of the Union Pacific ledgers that was sitting in their safe. They're moving and they found all those ledgers. These were the ledgers that he had hidden and he never showed, um, he kept telling the government he didn't have, that he didn't have anything you know, to show them. He had no, no real ledgers and he hid them and he hid them really well. And they didn't come to light until years and years after his death and now they're at the um, University of Iowa actually has them and they're digitized. <laughs> And God love anyone who wants to go through them and figure it all out. But the government at the time, in the 1873s, there was a commission set up and they accused Union Pacific of bulking the government, overcharging by $40 million. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just, you know, the 147 was a drop in the bucket, you know. With Durant being a businessman before that, was that just kind of what he did? Or was he did he seem some sort of an opportunity with the railroad that he didn't do in his other businesses? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and the fact is Central Pacific was doing it as well. And so it just makes you wonder if it was just a common practice because, you know, the government passed the Railroad Act, I think it was 1862, with the idea that you're going to do this for public good because we need this infrastructure so that we can expand into the Western territories and we can carry our military out there to protect people and the pioneers and also the mail and everything else. And and they, you know, if you read the act, it, it's like a call to the public good. And then you had these men involved that were just completely in it for the money. And so right there, you got an issue. Um, but then you have a character like Durant who, and you know, I don't know where he learned it. I got to be honest, because his training was as a doctor. Uh, but yeah, he figured out really quickly. He was a robber baron, figured out really quickly how he could make more money off the government. Wow. And living well off that, I'm sure, with this yacht. <laughs> right. Yeah. He and all the stockholders and all the congressmen that he bribed. Yep. If we go back to the show in season three, there's another extreme that we see Durant doing as he orchestrates the kidnapping of a baby to force a bunch of men to search for it. And that then slows down their progress on the railroad. Did he ever go to extreme lengths like that to get the railroad built? No. No. <laughs> Not that I know of. I know he I know he had some clashes with some of his labor and he could also be kind of a violent man. Like I read something that he actually physically assaulted somebody on his board. Um, He was very he had a a temper. He was very temperamental. I mean, he's been described that way by people that worked with him. Um, Even his own children called him an autocrat and a tyrant. So uh, I don't think he was a very nice man in any way, but I don't, I doubt that he did anything that extreme, but again, you know, it's Hollywood. You got to come up with something. 
Um, and it's just his way to show what he would probably do to, he was purposely delaying it. You know, it was the same idea of you know, let's make this railroad go all the way around that hill instead of through it so that we can charge more, you know, same idea. I guess at the end of the day, it's all boils down to making money. And if, if whatever it takes, it sounds like. <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah. <laughs> There's another thing we see in season three when he's, uh, well, at least according to the show, he's in Chicago and then he comes back uh, to hell on wheels and uh, he's there with, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who is not president yet, uh, but he's about to be, and it's a huge deal to have him visiting. Did Durant really have connections with Grant? Yeah, he had connections with all kinds of politicians, and even later on in life when he started settling and, and they had a second home in the Adirondacks, there's a guest book that I saw. I mean, they had, they had um, you know, Malcolm Forbes there. They had, um, um, this would have been after Durant died, but um, Harrison, President Harrison. So there, he was pretty well connected with the politicians. Uh, and part of that was, you know, what he, his lobbying and getting involved in the beginning of the Transcontinental and the writing of the Railroad Act. So it, it that that's not too far-fetched at all. I guess with all that money, too, you're going to be in, in circles like that. You're going to be in circles. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he you know, he entertained people. You know, he invited um like 700 people to come out and he put on, he, and I don't remember if this was in the hell on wheels or not, but he staged a big event um, to just try to get investors to invest in the transcontinental. And he had like mock um, Indian wars and hired native American tribes to fight each other, like in a mock. And he had food brought out and people were, you know, they had bonfires and, he, you know, really tried to entertain people as a way to bribe them and get them involved and invested in his whatever ventures that he was working on, you know, the Transcontinental, Credit Mobile, or whatever it was. So he knew how to work a room, put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that in the series, but it makes sense because it doesn't it doesn't show a lot of that as far as kind of some of the stuff going on behind the scenes. It kind of stays with Hell on Wheels itself. Yeah, and it kind of stays with the characters. That's one thing I think that made the show and any show really interesting and popular is that you get invested in the characters. And so if you're going to, you know, I can see why people who did the historical research for the show, you can't veer too far off. And, you know, so, oh, that would be exciting. Let's do this event. But, you know, how does it fit in with the plot line? And Bohannon was a main character, too, in that show. And it was literally kind of his story. So I can understand why there's just there was a lot of gaps and things made up. Well, speaking of politicians in season four, we do see some power struggles between Durant and uh, John Campbell, who comes as the new governor of Wyoming. And the impression that I got was uh, Durant's in charge. He's used to being in charge. And then Campbell comes in the picture and Durant just doesn't take too kindly to having somebody in power, like a new person in power. Were there any challenges to Durant's power like we see in the show? Well, yeah, definitely. Like I said about Oak Ames, who wanted him off the board because there was, um, you know, Oak was starting to get, they were starting to ask him questions about, hey, this is, these books are, this seems shady, what's going on? And, you know, um, there was like, you know, paper, newspapers were starting to pick up on and some of the scandals. So he definitely had conflicts. He had a conflict with his engineer, his first engineer that was working on the railroad quit. Um he played people against each other. So um, I wonder if that episode has something to do with 
where they were going to start the railroad, there was uh, an issue of whether it would be in, um, I hope I get these, it was like Iowa City or Council Bluffs. I can't remember. But what he did was he went to one town and said, we're going to start the railroad here. And all the businessmen would get interested and start investing in infrastructure with him. And then he went across the river to the other town and said the same thing. And it got really confusing, but it was his way of the businessmen against each other to see who was the highest bidder. Uh, and so he was kind of known for doing that, manipulating people in any possible way to get what he wanted and not care, you know, what the fallout was from that as long as he got what he wanted. That reminds me of something that we saw in season five, where I, I think he, he goes between uh, Cheyenne and Laramie. He talks about how uh, it's going to be uh, Laramie. And so the uh, prices skyrocket for the land and they crash in Cheyenne. So he goes over and buys a bunch of land there. And then, nope, never mind, going to stay in Cheyenne, which means that uh, land just value just goes up. So it sounds like he really did that kind of thing. Yeah, he did. And they probably used that um, to portray the same thing because what that that incident the original incident happened at the very beginning before the route yeah and so they were already involved and 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 staked out but yeah i mean i'm sure he did that with in other cases too i don't know about that particular one but yeah so he was he was kind of known for for doing that (laughs) i can't believe this guy had any friends i kind of wonder like you know, I just don't, I like, did he have friends where it seems like all of his friends at the end of his life were his lawyers, you know, even his kids hated him. So I don't know, like, I, I don't know if he died very happy person. Uh, yeah, I mean, his kids didn't like him. He left no will and they were fighting over his inheritance at the end and lawsuits and, and he put a lot of his stock in his new ventures in his wife's name. Cause so creditors couldn't come after him. Cause he had a lot of debt at that point and they had creditors coming after him. So I don't know how, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a cost, I guess, for living that kind of life. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds was, would the railroad not have, like if he had done it above board and everything would have been there, um, would he not have made, very much money. I mean, obviously not nearly the amount that as he's embezzling and as he's, you know, essentially, you know, robbing, uh, not making as much. Right. And, you know, my, he probably could have lived lifestyle or a, a good lifestyle. Um, you know, he had a yacht. He was, you know, supporting a family overseas. That must have been expensive. He, he had a, he had an office in New York City. He had a home in New York City. He had a home in Brooklyn. So he had multiple residents and he had, you know, a whole family to support. So, but I got the impression from what I read about him and even his son follows these footsteps and it's eventual ruin of the family and their fortunes is they lived well above their means and just lavished guests with, you know, all kinds of champagne, caviar, the best of this, the best of that. They were just show offs, which is really typical of the Gilded Age even though this was kind of the beginning of the Gilded Age for Durant, he was, you know, he knew what he was, he knew. I almost feel like he was trying to buy himself into that, that 400 group um, in the Gilded Age at some point. But I mean, it really came after he died. He died in 1885, but you know, you get the idea that he came from, you know, he went to school to be a doctor and he actually got a, a degree 
from the University of Albany. So I don't think he was, you know, he came from a good respected family, but I don't think he came from a lot of money. But definitely that was what he was pursuing, it seemed. And he was also just, uh, you know, an industrialist at the time when the country needed those type of people, visionaries. Uh, and it, I guess, it, you know, it accom- he accomplished what he needed to for the country, the transcontinental, it's just at what cost. I guess you get to a certain point and when he's can get away with a lot of it, it's probably just, you know, how much can I get away with and keep go- growing and growing and growing that scam essentially. And, and, and until somebody finds out. Right. But, you know, unlike other industrialists of the time and, and robber barons is, you know, when he died, he, like I said, he left no will. He, I, he had millions of dollars in debt from creditors coming after him. He had a railroad. He had land in the Adirondacks. He really is like what he left behind was like wealth and land. He was, you know, cash poor, um, land wealthy. But it, 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 that's unlike Carlos Huntington, for example, his rival on the Central Pacific. You know, when he died in, I think it was 1903, he left, he had a huge fortune and he left a lot of properties and um, there's museums to him. I mean, so I'm not sure, you know, what Durant did wrong, but he definitely, what he, amassed a fortune and lost it. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. Like, <laughs> how do you lose $40 million? I just don't understand. Like I could not, I can't figure that part out. I don't think his kids could either. So. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sure they weren't, they weren't too happy about that either. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, another major event that we see happen in the series is in season four. Uh, Durant gets brutally beaten. Uh, after Jessup is killed by Mickey McGinnis. And then one of Campbell's men named Heckard thought that Durant was behind it, so he attacks Durant. Then later, Durant, in retaliation, just brutally murders Heckard. And then later still in the series, Durant gets arrested for murdering him, who he was a federal marshal. Did any of that happen? No, not that I'm aware of. He did not murder anybody, and he did not go to jail for murder. So now... No, I don't think he, I don't think he was a murderous person. Uh, I think they were just trying to show his, and in general, I think shows like this, like Helen Wheels and like other shows like Yellowstone, you think about, they they just sort of thrive on that kind of Wild West violence and uh, people expect that. So that might've been why they decided to to do that and, and go that angle. Uh, but no, I don't know. I've never read, I didn't, in all my biographies, I never read anything where he was accused of murder. I did see where he was accused of assaulting people on his board, though. So he obviously had a violent temper. And so they were probably just using that to the extreme. Yeah. And, and also, playing as you're saying, like, you know, you think of the Old West, you're going to think, uh, you know, everybody's shooting everybody else. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Getting away with it. Right. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Durant being a doctor, and in season four, we get to see him put his doctor skills to the test. Uh, it's a Sidney Snow in episode 11 is shot, and Dr. Durant removes the bullet and then assists in the amputation of Snow's leg. And since it's actually Thomas Durant, Doc Durant is his nickname, uh, can you give a little more information about his medical training? And I'm assuming that since you mentioned he actually was a doctor? Yeah, he did. He did, went to the University of Albany Medical School. He graduated. He practiced for just a few years before his brothers asked him to start working with them and their company. So then he abandoned his practice and being a doctor. And I think for him, I 
it might be he was just restless and that wasn't, you know, the lifestyle he wanted to pursue. So I do know, though, that he was referred to as Dr. Durant a lot as later in life and kept that moniker. So I think he was always proud of the fact that he had a medical degree and maybe even a twinge of regret that he didn't pursue staying a doctor later, you know, who knows, especially later in life when he found himself being mired in scandal. But yeah, he, he was a doctor. So I thought that was interesting. They call him Dr. Rand. And I had, I did see references to that in some of his biographies that he was called Dr. Rand. So yeah, they, they got that part right. <laughs> and you know, he might've done those, he might've done things like that. I, I'm sure there was times where he used his knowledge when he was out West and there wasn't a lot of that around, you know, medical facilities available. So that definitely could have happened. Do what you have to do when you're, when there's nothing else around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they kind of got that one right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned, you mentioned this earlier and in season five, there's a race that we see happening between the Union Pacific, that's Dr. Ant's Union Pacific and the Central Pacific that you had mentioned earlier. And of course that point it is Bohannon that's leading the Central Pacific. How well did the show do depicting this race between the two railroads? So I thought they did a really good job. I thought that was really interesting too, because uh, I followed more the Union Pacific and Dr. Durant than I did the, what happened with Central. And then I had to kind of get more into it when I introduced Huntington into my stories, because Huntington does come back into Durant's life later. And they were really big rivals. They, um, the two men did not like each other at all. So I, I don't know if the show just decided to use Bohannon as kind of surrogate for Huntington. Huntington is in the show and they do show him getting aggravated and, and you know, that there is a rivalry there. But they were definitely in a race and a lot of it had to do with money because um, the more track laid, the more money you got. So they're, um, they did not like each other. They, you know, the two men, Huntington and Durant. So I think they, you know, put Bohannon in that position so that they could then show what was going on with Central Pacific, especially because there was such an interesting story with the labor and and the the drama of having to build that railroad through the mountains, right? So there's that's just a, such an interesting part of our history and um and the way those um, Chinese immigrants were treated especially is very fascinating part of our history. Because, you know, we use them for this labor when we needed them. And then they started passing laws saying, you know, that they were not allowed to bring any more Chinese people into our country. So these people that had come here to do all the work and wanted to bring their families weren't allowed to. Um, So that, you know, I think it was a really interesting part of the show. And I'm glad that the people that wrote it did that because it gave you a chance to see what was going on on the other railroad and the kind of the race between the two companies. On the other side, because there is then the Mormons that helped out, um, kind of as the other workforce. Was that the was that true as well? That 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 was kind of the two workforces. Yeah. So I don't know exactly, but I know that they were involved. But I don't know too much detail about that. But yeah, they're, um, you know, they were trying to. The companies were getting whatever help they could from anybody that was in the territories. So it made complete sense, right? And I couldn't imagine, like you're saying with the terrain. I mean, I've been to to those areas, and <laughs> I would not want to like try. I wouldn't. It's hard just to walk <laughs> up those those. 
Right. And then to do all that by hand, which, you know, dynamite and using dynamite and then shoveling by hand. It's just amazing that they were accomplished what they did. Um, we, we did talk about the um, the Cheyenne and that whole Laramie thing. I wanted to ask about the concept of having the towns. Were there towns that were built along the way? There's, of course, Hell on Wheels. It's kind of a moving town. But we were talking about uh, Durant saying that, oh, Cheyenne's going to be the hub. No, no, Laramie's going to be the hub. Um, was he setting up these these hubs as he went? Yeah. So even before the Transcontinental, he and um, his brothers had started investing in railroads out west they had the missouri and mississippi line and so there were these small you know spur trails and his vision was to tie in one tie these spur trails into one big you know one that went across the west and and yet towns would fight to be the town on the railroad right so that part of the series really shows that well i thought is you know the competition because even if you were just a few miles off, you know, you might not get access to the business and the commerce that would be coming through um, because your town wasn't on the railroad stop. And so similar to, you know, other infrastructure projects where, you know, like the Erie Canal before the transcontinental, it was the same idea. You know, you wanted to be the city or town on the Erie Canal so that you would have your farmers had access to a port, you were bringing in, you know, business and back and then you know, businessmen would invest in those cities and towns. And so it was that that I thought that they depicted that pretty well in the show. You mentioned there that they that Durant was working on some smaller railroads. So the Union Pacific wasn't even his first railroad. No. He, yeah. He and his brother invested in the um, I think it was the Missouri. It's the M&M line, Missouri, Mississippi. And it was um, and that's really kind of what got him started in railroads. And then he went you know, he was one of the people lobbying for the Railroad Act um, with that Lincoln sign. I think it was 1862 or 64. I can't remember. Um, but it was probably 62. But yeah, he was lobbying at that time because I think he saw the potential to connect some of the railroads he was invested in into the transcontinental. That makes sense as to why he would be put in charge of that or, you know, to lead that. Then without any experience whatsoever, I, that would be kind of a tough sell. But having some of that other experience, it sounds like he used that to advantage. Yes. I wanted to ask about um, some of the charges that we see. We talked about the well, $147,000 that we see in the series, which, of course, uh, was a lot more. Um, but in the final episode, Durant goes to D.C. and he's indicted with you know, fraud, corruption, bribing government officials. And as Durant puts it, President Grant needs a scapegoat and he's out of allies. Was that kind of how things ended up going for him? Yeah. So it was, you know, I don't know if that speech, I love that speech, by the way. I thought that was just excellent. And it's one of my favorite um, episodes, of course, the end, but still it was just, it was just awesome. I think it encapsulated his personality so well. And, but I don't know if he ever said those exact things or said those things um, exactly. But what happened is he was, you know, by the end, he was ousted from the board of the Union Pacific, right? And the stockholders at that point were like, what the heck's going on here? The newspapers had caught wind that there was some scandal with this credit mobilier. And they really pinned it on Oak Ames, who was a congressman. And then the chips started falling because they started discovering other congressmen who took bribes from Durant. And the reason they took bribes was so that because people started um, pushing legislation 
to rein in the railroad companies and to start getting more accounting accountability for their costs. And the congressman refused to pass these bills that, or even if it was a bill that would say, you know, we're going to start taxing you, you know, we're going to start requiring you to pay out for this or that, any kind of, um, you know, favor that was given to the railroad companies. If there was legislation put in front of Congress that would take it away, that these people were bribed. And the newspaper started catching wind and it was a real political fallout for Oak Games. And it was starting to um, be a political fallout for other Congress people. And uh, especially since they lied and said, oh, I didn't take a bribe. And then it was discovered they were. So I think that's really what the show was kind of alluding to was that somebody needed to to be the goat, right? Somebody needed to be the person they were going to sacrifice. And the problem was, you know, they set up these commissions and they went after Durant and they went after Huntington, Central Pacific and Union Pacific. And they started to get, you know, wanting the ledgers and the accounts and all that. And they were having hard times getting them. Um, how they discovered the 40 million exactly without the, you know, the exact ledgers, I'm not sure. Uh, but I did find in the, I read some of the hearings and, you know, these are statements that were made that we have discovered, or we feel that the, you know, that the, they've taken at least 40 million, double the amount of what it would have normally cost to build. And so the rant started getting a little ill at this point too. I mean, the hearing started in 1873. He was by then kind of done with the transcontinental and living um, in the Adirondacks and trying to start his ventures there. And, but he was, he had to, he had to hire all these lawyers because he, he was constantly being called to hearings. He was getting very irate. He was um, not a friendly witness, <laughs> to say the least. So I think that's kind of what they did is they just took all of that and made it one big speech, which was pretty cool. Um, and then, you know, he, when he died, he, you know, he escaped a lot of the um, scandal, whereas Huntington was hounded, hounded by Hearst at the time, took over, um, you know, he had the Hearst newspapers, the um, yellow journalism. There was a journalist that Hearst, like, you know, said, you know, I'm, you know, sticking you on um, Huntington, Callis Huntington. And this guy just hounded Huntington almost to his death. And the Central Pacific was made to pay back $20 million. And Huntington kept fighting that. He didn't even want to pay that. And he he was um, there's all kinds of caricatures and there's like cartoons, political cartoons about Huntington. You know, there's the Uncle Sam with like this bag of money that looks like a shriveled old man. And Huntington's grabbing it from him, you know, things like that. Um, and Huntington tried so hard to bribe congressmen to say, you know, get me out of this. And it just didn't work. He lost his political power. But, um, you know, there was a sense, I think, of um, and I use this in my novels because. I discovered that after Hunting, after Durant dies in 1885, Huntington befriends his son, William, and, and ends up um, basically becoming William's show, um, loan shark. And the one thing Durant left was a bunch of, a lot of land in the Adirondacks. And Huntington starts lending money to William for these extravagant homes he was building. And he, you know, William also purchased, built a yacht traveled around the world, but he really didn't have a business, um, wasn't really making money. And Huntington kept loaning him money and then he used the land as collateral. So I feel like Huntington got his revenge on Durant in the end <laughs> because 
he ended up owning all of the Durant fortune in the end, what was left of it. That's pretty telling that you get in trouble for uh, bribing. And then the way you want to get out of that is by bribing. <laughs> like, try it's like, that's pretty telling of the type of personality that the, those men were. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, I mean, Huntington and Durant were two of the same kind of person. Yeah, very interesting people for the time period. And, um, yeah. And they weren't philanthropists. You know, you can say that about like Carnegie, you know, Carnegie left behind this legacy of these libraries. And, you know, when Huntington died, though, his son did end up leaving a lot of his homes and estates as museums and that sort of thing. But I don't think I went through some of Huntington's papers that I found at Syracuse University. And there were letters from people asking them for money to support, you know, whatever it was. And he wrote back, like, if I if I gave money to everybody that asked me for money, I'd, I'd be broke, you know. And the guy died. He had like $143 million in the bank. So it's not like he would die broke. So um, they were two of a kind for sure. Maybe he learned from Durant. Durant died, gave all his, his money away through, not, not necessarily giving away, I guess, maybe the wrong term there, but... <laughs> Yeah, he. Um, but I just thought it was really interesting when I found out that Huntington got involved with Durant's son later in life. And I thought, why would he do that? The only reason I could find that he would would be to get revenge on Durant. Because at that point, Huntington had other railroad businesses. I mean, Central Pacific was one, but he had railroad businesses up and down the East Coast. And he was still very influential and he still had a lot of business going. Um, he wasn't as broke. Um, as Durant. So he really had no, there was no reason to get, take a vested interest in, in the Durant um, venture up in the Adirondacks, except for, I think, to just do in his, his son, you know, his, who was so naive. And again, that tells like with their relationship between, uh, with, with Durant, how much he, he must have just hated Durant to, even after he's gone to still have that grudge. And especially if Durant dies and kind of escapes all the scandal and doesn't have to pay back. And, you know, he's not being, you know, he just didn't have to account for everything. And and they were, you know, you should. It, it was interesting because I found so many of these political cartoons in the Huntington papers. I mean, he was portrayed as this really just nasty character stealing money from taxpayers, like poor women, you know, like walking in the street and he's stealing their money. I mean, there's all kinds of cartoons like that if you go online and look. You, you could probably find some, but yeah. Yeah. The Hearst machine totally went after Huntington. In that final episode, you're talking about kind of that, the speech that he gave. Um, and when, when there's a particular line of dialogue in there that Durant says that ties back to something in the very first episode, he talks about how, I'll, I'll quote it, I have it written down. It says, I will be remembered as a malefactor who only operated out of greed for personal gain, but without men like me, your glorious railroad will never be built. And the impression that I got throughout that kind of was uh, towards the, at the end of the series was he did what he did. It, the railroad wouldn't have been built without him, but then, but the history books are going to leave him out of, you know, he should be left out of the history books. Uh, do you think that he was left out of the history books in that way? Or maybe because of that he died and kind of escaped some of that? Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, the the best book I read uh, read about him and the railroad being built was by Steve Ambrose. Um, Nothing like it in the world, I think, is what it's called. And uh, he really does a great job. And I would bet that the writers of the Hell on Wheels use that book quite often as part of their background history, because in that book, 
he really goes into the characters of Durant and Huntington and the men that were involved, the engineers and the people involved and all those little scandals we just talked about, how playing one town off against the other and and the the Sioux Indians and the um, you know the Native Americans that were fighting against the railroads encroaching on their territory. So that that book really does a great job. And I feel like in that book and, and just in general in the biographies I've read, he's kind of revered for being this, the, the, uh, a titan that, you know, a titan of his time. But then there's this acknowledgement that he was, could be a real jerk and a tyrant. Uh, but it's almost like, well, we're going to excuse that part of his personality because, you know, which is, I think, what the writers did with that speech. You know, his, he's like, I'm going to be remembered as this, you know, male fact, but without me, you know, none of this would have happened. Um, and I feel like the history books kind of what that do exactly what he says, you know, they'd acknowledge that it wouldn't have happened without him, even if he did do it at such a cost to our taxpayers and uh, or to the taxpayers of the time and to, you know, um, with a very lack of ethics, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it makes you kind of wonder about what's going to happen with the infrastructure bill because you know, and hopefully this won't happen. But you know, that's a lot of money being floating around for infrastructure, and you know, I'm sure that there's going to be people that are greedy and find a way to make more money than they should off the government. Which you know, it, you see it all the time: Medicare, Medicare scams, all kinds of scams, right? Taxpayer scams. So. I don't think it's that unusual. I just think nowadays you're more easily caught. Well, because of people like Durant that they know what to look for now. <laughs> yeah. Then they started regulating. Right. Yeah, exactly. They're like, well, we can't believe you guys did this. Really? We thought you were doing this out of the goodness of your heart. <laughs> the public good. You should see some of the stuff I read. I'm like, you guys really thought everyone would take on to this for the public good? Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, they're <laughs> businessmen. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking about books, you, you've, uh, I'm sure, done a ton of research into Durant for your book. So if you were in charge of the series, what's something that you would have done different with how they approached his character? You know, I got to say, I really, I really liked his character. So I, I, he was just so charismatic and so entertaining that I think they, they did a fine job. And, uh, you know, the whole family thing, I could kind of see where they probably introduced family in season two and thought, you know what, we're not going to go down this road because it's just going to get too complicated. And we're going to, you know, there wasn't a lot of info. There's not a ton. There was, until I came along and started digging, and believe me, I really dug. I mean, I went to the Library of Congress. I went everywhere. There, Even the last biography written about the family was like 1980. And, the, and that was before digitization. And there wasn't just a lot of information out there. So, um so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that the, I can't fault them for that at all and not introducing his family. Because, I mean, you're out west and his family wasn't really there. And so what what's the point of bringing in? I, I was kind of even surprised they even brought in him. I don't know why they did that, except for maybe to have this Lily's character be a foil. I don't really know. Um, I don't know whose idea that was, but whatever. Um, I just thought that they kind of brought him to life in a really colorful way. And it was it was just so entertaining. And you know what's interesting is I had already finished this book, which was the first in a trilogy I wrote, the Durant Family Saga, and I didn't even know about Hell on Wheels. I was in the deep neat. I was well into the second book, and the second book, Durant is dead. He dies. His kids are you know not really mourning the fact that their father died. And somebody said to me, "Have you seen this TV show, Hell on Wheels?" And I was like, "No, I've never seen it." And I started watching it. I was afraid to watch it because I was like, "Oh, what if I got his character wrong?" 
But I felt like, no, I, I really didn't get his character wrong at all. Because his first book, he's in mostly in the first book. And I think they did a good job because they, they probably read the history books about him. You know, he, he was just a very colorful person. What's your favorite story about the real Durant that didn't make its way into the series? The stories about his time in the transcontinental would be one thing. Um, but what I saw, because I really researched the family dynamics, is this kind of dichotomy of a father that was really, you know, feared, but also loved. And his daughter, by his daughter especially, um, and his daughter was trying to write at the end of her life a biography of her father. And I don't know, if it, I, I, I guess it got lost in history because his daughter was an author and a poet, a published author and poet. And um, so, you know, what I got the impression about in this, you know, you can't really bring this up in a, a series where you don't involve family, is that he, he was revered, you know, his family really did love him as much as they feared him. And I, I saw that in letters, especially between his children and him. And I would have liked to have kind of seen more of that other side of him, that kind of human family side. But they didn't they didn't go there at all with the series. And I don't I, I can understand why. And I, again, I think because the point of the view of that series was really not Dr. Ann. It was more that Bohannon character who was completely fictional. And he was the guy that had kind of that human wanting to have family, wanting to you know, that struggle between having a wife because he had lost his family and all that. So they could do that with Bohannon, but they didn't need to do that with Durant. <clears throat> so, yeah. So that was the only thing I think, you know, I would, I, I think they missed out on is just showing that other kind of human side that, that they could have, but you know, what are you going to do? It, yeah. I mean, it's easy too. Like you're saying, if the family is not really there a lot anyway, then it's pretty easy to just, almost, you know, not, not show them because they're not there. And that would also be accurate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then, you know, because it was set out West, they didn't really show times where he was out East with, you know, family or, um, uh, you know, colleagues. Like I said, I read this article where they were just praising him for entertaining people on his yacht and everyone loved him. And so there was this kind of other side to him, big entertainer. He was big and lavish spender on entertainment that they don't really show in the, the show either. And I think it's, you know, again, because they were constrained by the, the what they could get done and they had to get that railroad moving along, you know, so they couldn't sidetrack it. Um, but that would have been, you know, an interesting... So, you know, what's interesting is I, I actually put together a screenplay, a pilot for a TV series that would sort of follow Durant after the Transcontinental. And, that, and I did that because I'd written these three books and I was like, you know, I'd love to see... A, it would be a spinoff because it can't really be a sequel because it's not Hell on Wheels, but he's a historic figure. So you can do whatever you want, right? With that, it's public domain. And and I, I, I felt like, you know, there is this sort of different side to Durant that this family dynamic. And I think you see that in shows like Dallas and Yellowstone. And um, I'm trying to think of other family dramas that are like soap operas, where you can kind of see the two sides to a person who's a family person, but also um, a tyrant. And um, and that's kind of the side of Durant that would have been interesting to see more in Helen Wheels. But, you know, there's always an opportunity in the future to do that because he did. He lived a good tw almost 20 years after the railroad was complete. You mentioned your books there. Uh, can you give an overview of your books and where someone listening to this can get a copy? Yeah, just look up Durant Family Saga 
And you'll find all kinds of things, um, podcast interviews, articles, and the books themselves are in, you know, Barnes Noble, Amazon, IndieBound. You can find them all, all different um, places. They're sold in bookstores, in certain bookstores in the region, in New York, mostly in New York, where I'm from. Uh, so, it, you know, it depends on where you live. But you just Google Durant Family Saga and you can you can see this is the first one. But all of them have a Durant Family Saga um, in their title. So. Yeah, and um, if you're kind of interested in knowing what happened to Durant after that, it really follows that trajectory. After the the timeline of Hell on Wheels. Yeah, yeah. And you know what's really funny, and this is just a little anecdote, is what happened, the reason I started writing about the Durants is I was up in the Adirondacks, a camp that was built by one of, by his son. And the story was that um, it was built as a hideaway for the Durant mistresses. And it was far enough in the wilderness. It was pre- it's pretty remote area. And so they would hide out their mistresses there. And I didn't know anything about Durant's. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. This is about, oh, almost 10 years ago. And I thought, oh, I'd love to write a love story because what a cool love story, you know, 1800, late 1800s, mistresses in the woods. And then I started researching the Durant's. And I was like, holy crow, this family. And I couldn't believe like all the scandal that plagued them, you know, even after transcontinental. And I mean, literally, it's a soap opera. So it just took me down this rabbit hole of research. You didn't even know what you were getting into with that. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And um, I didn't realize how famous the the father was. I was really thinking I was writing mostly about the son. But the father had played such a big role in, in what happened to his children and his family that I had to I had to, you know, include him. It's the first book is a lot about him and that. So. Yeah. So um, that's kind of what got me involved in all of this. And then next thing I know, I'm like an expert on Durant. And, um, you know, (laughs) and so I gave a talk at a a local like museum. And Dr. Durant's great grandson showed up. And he's like, and he's, he's a lawyer. And um, he lives in New York. And, um, in one of the cities here, like in, uh, I think it's Rochester. And he came up to me, he's like, Hey, you know, if I ever need to know anything about my family, I'll be sure to give you a call. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Be the, the, the subject matter expert on, on came the expert on the Durant family <laughs> without really intending to. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Dr. Durant and hell on wheels and sharing some of that information with us. I really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks for having me. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Sheila Myers for sharing her expertise about the real Dr. Rant in the TV series Hell on Wheels. If you want to hear more stories about the Durant family, be sure to pick up Sheila's great series called The Durant Family Saga. And while you're at it, check out her brand new book called The Truth of Who You Are. You can find all her work over at SheilaMyers.com. Or, as always, you can find links to our books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Durant's son did not die of cholera. 
like the series suggests. Number two, Durant never murdered a federal marshal like we see in the series. Number three, even though he had the nickname Doc, Durant was not a real doctor. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. Durant's son did not die of cholera like this series suggests. It is true that Durant's son did not die of cholera. As Sheila mentioned, Durant's son lived to the age of 84. That brings us to number two. Durant never murdered a federal marshal like we see in the series. That is also true. Even though we see Durant murdering a marshal in retaliation for a brutal beating that the marshal had given to Durant earlier, Sheila said she never came across anything in her research to suggest Durant murdered anyone or went to jail for murder. That means number three is the lie. Even though he had the nickname Doc, Durant was not a real doctor. He was a real doctor. Sheila told us that Thomas Durant graduated from the University of Albany Medical School. And even though he only practiced for a few years, that was before abandoning his practice to go to work with his brothers that eventually led to working on the railroad. But despite this, later on in life, he actually was referred to as Doc Durant, like we see in the series. Last but not least, it's time now to let you know how long it took to create this episode. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll know I like to share this information just to help you appreciate all the podcasts you listen to. After all, a huge majority of podcasts are like mine, completely free to listen to, but that doesn't mean that they're free to create. Quite the opposite. They can cost a lot of money sometimes, but almost every podcast out there has a higher cost than money. They have high costs in time time it takes to when you're getting starting, especially learning the technical side. But even as you're going every single episode to research them, to record them, to edit them and so on. But I only have these statistics for my own show. So with that in mind, today's episode took me 38 hours to create. And to make it clear, that's only my time. Obviously, Sheila spent way more time researching for her Durant Family Saga trilogy. And to be even more specific, it isn't even all of my time overall because that 38 hours is only the time that it took for me to produce this one episode. It doesn't include all the time that I spend building and maintaining the Based on a True Story website, finding new guests and scheduling the logistics of that, the email newsletter, social media, and all those things that don't have anything to do with making today's one episode, but are still required to make the podcast overall. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider supporting the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, you can learn how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Oh, and don't forget, we have a Facebook group as well where you can chat about all of the episodes. Just do a search for the Based on a True Story podcast Facebook group. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon. <laughs>